This is Iron Sports. We're so excited to have Andy Phillips, who just came out of a book called Round Zero about the NFL draft. It's the perfect uh, draft idea in terms of rounds. I love the name of the book. But, Andy, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, the, I appreciate you liking the name. It's uh, it's funny. Not a lot of people ask me about the name, but the, the point of the name is, hey, listen, it's everything that we have questions about that takes place before round one. It, it obviously, it makes sense when you think about why we would do that, but it's that January up until that first pick sweet spot. Obviously, some stories dip into, you know, once they're drafted, just a little bit if it's needed. But, yeah, it's, it's that sweet spot of stuff that we think we maybe know about, but there's a lot of stuff that we don't. So I appreciate you touching on that. Well, you touched in your book a little about your draft process. You were not Bryce Young, uh, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis. You weren't going to be number one in the draft. You were sort of projected to be at the end of the draft coming out of Central Michigan. Tell us a little about your story in the whole draft process. Yeah, and that was really the, the point of this book was I had, you know, being an undrafted guy, I actually had a very, in my opinion, I thought unique draft story in the sense that, you know, I started almost four years at Central Michigan, but I knew I was undersized. I was 6'2", 300 pounds soaking wet, but I had a great pro day, 4'9", 20 26 bench did all the drills well, did my, my jumps were, you know, 30 inches and 9 feet 2 on the broad and everything. I checked every box except for I had short arms which <laughs> in a smaller size and Coming out of the Mac, those are just little questions that you just can't have. But regardless, we had enough feedback during the pre-draft process. Uh, my agent, Carter Chow, who's uh, you know, with Ian Dubin Sports, uh, they deal really well with late-round guys. You know, Ian Dubin's represented Tom Brady and Julian Edelman and Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, they do really well with smaller schools. <laughs> I would say those were, good, those were good late-round draft picks. Go ahead, continue. No, no doubt. No doubt. So they had enough feedback that they thought I was a legit late-round guy. After my pro day, once everything started checking, conversations they were having, conversations I was having, well, we get into draft weekend. In the first call I get, it wasn't the first call from this person or this team, but the first call I get draft weekend was about an hour before the first round. Now, obviously, I knew they weren't calling for the first round. But Dave Magazoo, the offensive line coach with the Bears at the time, called me and pretty much told me how amazing of a weekend it's going to be for me. He can't wait to, he can't wait to talk to me. So I thought, well, hey, I have a shot with the Bears late round at the minimum. I bet they'll at least want me as an undrafted guy offering me a contract. It gave you, it gave me a little more confidence in the weekend, to be honest with you, that it felt like the Bears undrafted signing was almost like the floor. Well, weekend comes and goes. I don't get an offer. I don't get drafted. I don't get a contract to offer. The Bears went radio silent after the draft. It was the craziest thing. And I, long story short, I end up getting a tryout opportunity with Green Bay, go to the tryout, get signed as the only tryout player of the 25 there. And, you know, then I'm in the correct spot, right? Then it's like as if I had just been signed, no big deal. But it took me an extra week post-draft to get to that point. But every year when I watch the draft now, every year it always popped in my head, what prospect is getting that style of a call? Is getting that call, and more importantly, I started thinking over the years, well, why the heck did Coach Magazoo call me? Because I'm sure he wouldn't have wasted his time if they not only weren't going to draft me, but if he knew they didn't, the GM and the scouts didn't even want to sign me after. I don't think he would have wasted his time making, you know, giving me a call. So I've always wondered, is there a disconnect? What is the process between a general manager and their coaches uh, during the pre-draft process? And then this idea really started formulating that, hey, I think there's a lot we don't know, especially when it comes to that you know, pre-draft time. I think I need to get all four of these uh, angles that make up that period, your players, coaches, general managers, and uh, agents, 
and see if we can piece some stuff together based on stories. So that was really the motive of the book was my own little experience. I'm going to deviate a little bit from the draft process because certainly for this summer, you spent a summer with, we should have the book called Summer with Aaron Rodgers. So you spent the summer with him and Aaron's been criticized a lot for, well, if you're just, uh, you know, he doesn't take the rookies out and do PlayStation with them. They don't go to dinner together. They don't watch movies, but you seem to have a different experience with Aaron Rodgers, who seems to be in the news all every single day about going to the Jets, but go ahead. Yeah. You know what? I it, there's nothing that drives me more nuts than the lack of information yet over discussion about how Aaron is with teammates because there's been a handful a few here and there guys that have went into the media um, and maybe said some things that they didn't like about Aaron as a teammate very few but there is a couple and then this everyone runs with there listen I was the last man on the roster in Green Bay in 2015 the day I got signed I was the 89th man on the roster the day I got signed, yet the very first team function I was a part of uh, was like a walkthrough practice, and he comes right up to me, introduces himself as Aaron Rodgers. I do the corny, oh, I know who you are, and that's like <laughs> uncomfortable, and blah, blah. And he, he, he just laughed, and then he you know, asked where I'm from, asked about me. And then the next day we go into a walkthrough, and the, the first team offense goes, then while the second team offense is up there, meanwhile, I'm just sitting there like trying to you know, process everything. And next thing I know, who's standing next to me, Aaron Rodgers, asked me what questions I had, going over every play that the second team was going over about, hey, what would your call be here? Hey, this is why we would do this. This could be my check. And I'm like, this guy is taking time with the last man on the roster. That happened very, very frequently during every walkthrough. Well, then you get in even further, and, you know, we had, you know, before one of the preseason games, there was an offensive line dinner. The offensive line, you know, it's usually, you know, the veterans, but they invited me. So I went, and who's there? Aaron Rodgers with all the guys, just being one of the guys. And then uh, just little things throughout, you know, eating breakfast with the rookies, uh, like I said, quizzing us on all these plays. It was very the little thing in training camp. You make a big block, and who's there smacking me on the helmet and saying, great job. I mean, it was just very little things. But the most important one for me was my final practice. It was, you know, we had a preseason game, and this, you know, we practiced the day before games. And, I, you know, I knew it was an opportunity uh, or a possibility that it would be my last practice in Green Bay. Um, and the most of the vets weren't going to play in the fourth preseason game. So for the practice, they didn't really have to do anything. So I got done running our offense versus scout team defense. Well, then, hey, I'm, I'm a – I'm an undrafted rookie. As soon as I get done doing that, I had to be the, the scout team center for the number one defense. And who comes in and taps out the quarterback to play quarterback for that entire drive with Aaron Rodgers? We had, about an 18, we had about an 18-play drive. And the best part was the very first play we get up to the line of scrimmage. Now, mind you, all, this, all the plays are on cards because we're supposed to be running looks at the Saints will give our defense. So we get up there, and I'm looking across. And now this is the classic – walk through but it's the first three steps are very fast and hard yeah how hard do you really go it's the very unsettling scenario of what a walk through slash day before the game really is well all i know is i have bj raji lined up in front right in front of me breathing down my neck and i have the mvp of the league under center i'm not letting him get to him so i fired off the ball that very first play that almost caused the brawl but end of the day i wasn't going to let anyone touch aaron Rodgers, right 
Well, for that, the rest of that drive, the best part about it was it didn't matter what they were putting on the cars. We were getting the line of scrimmage, and Aaron was treating it like a game. He was making all the checks in the world using our plays, checking everything at the line of scrimmage. We got the defense to you know, jump off sides with this famous cadence for uh, the touchdown on the drive. And it was just one of those experiences. And I remember just thinking about it going, as cool as that was for me, I guarantee you this guy knew that for a handful of us it would be the last time we ever played football again. And he wanted to help create some memories for us because he didn't have to practice that day. But he chose to go in there and do that. And I always found that that, that, that that settled with me over the years that I think he, you know, that was his purpose of this. So being able to catch up with him, you know, seven years later when I, you know, during the process of this book was very cool. So the stories about Aaron Rodgers just going to the darkness, playing Jeopardy all the time, not interacting with teammates, those are completely untrue because as you're saying you were definitely involved with him. Oh, yeah. Listen, were we, were we friends? No. And, and I'm very, very honest when I say that. Listen, every every team, you have your handful of friends, you have your teammates. Now, me and him, we didn't we didn't have, you know, we weren't texting buddies or anything like that, but it always seemed like anytime you're in the building, if there was an opportunity for him to, to help me or talk to me, he was right there. So, yeah, I mean, look, what people do outside of the building, everyone's different. I mean, that was the one thing that was unique about walking the locker room. I'm walking into a locker room, and, uh, you know, half the locker room has kids. Half the locker room is married. Uh, some guys are divorced. Some guys uh, have their, their parents living with them. Some guys they're still in an apartment because they never know when they're going to get cut. Like everyone's in a different space in their life, so there's a lot of uniqueness that happens off the field, and guys are just in different stages. So to think that every single quarterback in the league is, you know, playing PlayStation with the rookies is unrealistic. And uh, if you're assuming that as you know one of these national hosts, you're just you got to dig into it a little bit more, not just assume and have something that fits your narrative. You know what I mean? Right, right. And and so we're going to delve into the de- draft process, and who's the better person to, to your story about Aaron Rodgers? I thought I knew everything about Aaron Rodgers, but I did not realize that, that you went through the entire process when you talked to him about how he thought, you know, he, the, inter- the interview with San Francisco with Mike Nolan, and he decided he didn't go, go so well, but the fact that he thought he was probably going to go to Tampa with John Gruden. So talk a little about the whole process with Aaron Rodgers in terms of his draft process. You know what's crazy is I was on Good Morning Football last month on NFL Network, and when I when I told them, you know, I have an Aaron Rodgers story that people just don't know, they're like, wait a second. And this was off camera at one point. They're like, that has to be your lead with this book because we think we know everything about the guy. And I'm like, no, you know what's great was Aaron talked to me, and he told me, he goes, listen, I was really, before we got on this call, he goes, I was really thinking about stuff that people don't know because, listen, the narrative of Aaron Rodgers' draft story was local Northern California boy wants to go to his hometown favorite team and doesn't, and he falls to Green Bay the rest of history. No one knows what was actually happening. So, yeah, talking to Aaron, it was interesting because he was a Juco kid who ended up going to Cal, having a really good season, uh, a couple seasons at Cal. And there was really some unknown about what Mike Nolan, the San Fran, was going to do. So talking to Aaron about it, he said, listen, I, I had a, I had a great visit with them. Uh, I, he goes, I really hit it off with Mike McCarthy, who was the offensive coordinator in San Fran at the time, ironically. He goes, we really hit it off. We both had, you know, West Coast, you know, philosophy backgrounds and just really hit it off schematically and personality-wise. He was in, listen, turns out, you know, Mike Nolan wasn't his cup of tea. He'll fully admit that. But he also goes, listen, down the line, we found out Mike Nolan, you know, wasn't that a fan of mine either. And he goes, that's okay. Everyone's different. Um, but he goes, no, the thing going into the draft on draft day when they select Alex Smith that I thought I was going there is just wrong. He goes, I thought I had a shot during the process, but, you know, I don't know when it was, but a few days before we knew it wasn't going to be a thing. So he goes, 
that is the one thing. I was like, I said, well, this is great because I also know you didn't think you were going to fall down to 24 in Green Bay either, right? So where did you think you had a good shot to go? And that's when he brought up, he goes, listen, the single best, you know, visit slash confirmation I got was from Tampa Bay because John Gruden was a coach at the time. They had came out to Cal to work, to interview, you know, interview me, meet with me, go over tape. And he goes, Aaron said, I, I had a feeling they'd want to work me out. So I had some of my other, you know, teammates from college. They are ready just in case. And he goes, after the, the meeting, they asked, hey, can you work out? He said, absolutely. So he goes, we get down there. We're kind of warming up, stretching out, getting the ball loose a little bit. And he goes, next thing you know, who's coming out of the tunnel is Jerry Rice. <laughs> this is like and out of a goes, movie. That's amazing. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and it's because you got to remember at this time, Jerry had already played for John Gruden in Oakland. But this was still when Jerry was somewhat thinking about a comeback during like the Denver Seattle time when he was kind of bouncing a little bit late, but they bring him in because now you have a great NFL receiver who wants to continue working out. But now you have, that was Aaron Rodgers, him and Joe Montana were Aaron Rodgers heroes growing up. So you kind of get that. And Aaron jokes about the workout that, you know, he would throw a perfect pass, perfect pass. As soon as Jerry's up, it was like the hardest throw in the world for him to make just because he was so nervous, but he goes, it was an amazing time, great workout. And then to top it all off, this was back when the draft was the first round was still on a Saturday. They gave Aaron a call, I think he said Thursday, and it was John Gruden basically saying, if you're there at number five, we're taking you. So that's a, when the head coach is telling you a few days before the draft they're taking you at number five, you got to be pretty confident once the fourth pick is in that, hey, I might end up in Tampa. Well, they ended Tampa, you know, ends up taking the second best running back from uh, Auburn that year instead. And listen, I, I mentioned in the book about the quarterbacks that the John Gruden brought staff and brass had from that moment until the end of their time in Tampa Bay. And let's just say they're not Aaron Rodgers, but the floor for him, he thought was number eight, because that's where Arizona and Denny Green had uh, the eighth pick. They needed a quarterback and they had just, he says we had great meetings. So he, he kind of felt number five was the place, but number eight was the floor. So at that point, then it was uh, once he kind of got to the, the teens, that's when they knew it was going to be a very interesting rest of the day and he ends up going to, to green bay and the rest is history on that one well miami they drafted they had the second pick they drafted ronnie brown who had a nice yep. career with the dolphins but nick saban was yep. interviewed i mean you would think what if nick saban would have drafted uh uh rogers with the second pick nick saban might never go to alabama never win all these national championships he'd yep. have aaron Rodgers and probably could win like five titles that would have been amazing to pair aaron Rodgers with nick saban in miami oh think what everybody in miami would be thinking about then but it, it, look at that draft it was um it was alex smith went one ronnie brown two braylon edwards to cleveland three cedric benson to the bears four of course they could have drafted aaron Rodgers too i'm mean, giving all these <laughs> names of these teams and then tampa drafted yep. cadillac williams think of all these running backs brown benson williams were all running backs that were drafted. If you look at the the whole, I was looking at this draft. It was Dan Orlowski. It's like the ESPN. If you turn on ESPN in the morning, get up. It was number 41, 45. Pollock, who's on the the NCAA, was 17. And uh, there was another guy. Marcus Spears was also drafted. So everybody who ESPN has was in that that one draft. And, and you know what's great about what you just said? You just named three guys who have been on TV for years. Meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is still playing at a high level. It's <laughs> yeah. just it's unbelievable. Yeah, the Bears had their shot at him. Nick Saban had his shot at him, and, and he, he he mentioned that you know meeting with Nick Saban and the Dolphins, and um, but the, the team was Tampa, which is just uh, I thought that was very interesting because it's almost as if we've been trained to think it was uh, San Fran or nothing. 
No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> well, and, and just to jump right back into your book, um, you talk about the agents and the process because of the draft slotting. It's like these players don't really hold out because they sort of know what they're going to make. There's some ways you can move some of the money around. And people say, well, why do they need an agent? But you go to the book, talk about these agents. You talk to three of them, Carter Chow, Lee Steinberg, Vince Taylor, about the process they do. I'm like, you need to have me because I'm going to help position you in order to get drafted as high as possible. But not just that, but get to the best team for you. Yeah, and, and that was so. I, the initial conversation I had. Now, mind you, Carter Child's my agent, and uh, so I already knew a lot of his stuff. But some great stories from them, like for example, Lee Steinberg, the legend. He'll only take on four first-round caliber guys a year now, or you know, you know, he learned early on because they have so much invested into a client because it takes a lot to to invest to maximize each prospect's potential. And by potential, I mean all the communications, all the advice, all the resources that go into this. He can only take on four first-round type guys at a time. And like you said, the communication, it's, it's coaching up the guys, especially during the draft. And Lee gives two really good examples. Number one was he actually now advises guys, you know, that have the opportunity, especially your quarterbacks, to go to the green room. He, he'd rather than not. Because he doesn't want them sitting in that Aaron Rodgers uh, scenario. He doesn't want them sitting in the Brady Quinn scenario where you're dropping and every camera's on you and you get that unfortunate. He goes, we rent places out. He goes, Patrick Mahomes, we rent it out. It was a country club. And Panini paid for it all. Like, that's how it's getting. But he goes, we surround you with family. And he goes, it started out where we would just rent out a hotel and make it look like our office. He goes, that's how it started. But he puts these guys in a much more comfortable scenario. Another great example that uh, uh, Lee gave during this is coaching guys during the draft. And by coaching, it's having so much communication going on that you try to limit the true surprises these guys have. And that's one thing Aaron mentioned, too, is the biggest misconception with the draft is that there's tons of surprises. There really isn't. Now, the surprises are more so they're, – they're not surprises when the picks are actually made. It's throughout how you're coaching the guys. So Lee talks about when he represented Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger wanted to be a New York Giant. No, don't say that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ben wanted to be a New York Giant, and the Chargers had the Senior Bowl, and they had Philip Rivers. So there was a really good relationship with the Chargers and Philip Rivers. So Ben thought okay if the chargers and he knew the giants they knew the giants did like eli but so ben thought hey if the giants take eli number one or i'm sorry if the chargers take eli number one i am the preferred guy with the giants you know they had to kind of figure it out that hey yeah you know if taking eli but the chargers like philip so if they pass on him i'm the guy who they would take in that scenario so ben was as soon as Eli goes number one to the Chargers, he said Roethlisberger and his family were ecstatic, thinking they were going to the Giants. And he had to coach them and call them down and say, hey, 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 all this means, because Lee knew. Lee knew that the Giants loved Eli Manning, and Lee also knew the information about the Chargers loving Phillip Rivers due to the Senior Bowl. He knew this, so he had to coach Ben and say, listen, listen, listen. This just means there's going to be a trade. He goes, yeah, and he goes, it was so hard to try and calm him down because they were so excited thinking they were – but he, he had, had to coach him and warn him. So when 
next thing you know, when that picks winded down, I think it was number four, when that's winded down, winded down, you know, 14 minutes is almost up this back when they had 15 minute round or minutes on for the first round. Is the closer they were getting there, the more that Ben thought there was a chance he was going to the Giants. And then right at like the 15th minute, 11th hour, we have a trade. And he goes, it was just deflating because as much as you try and coach it up, him and the family were so excited that it was really, it was funny. He goes, it was the best thing that happened for him, Paul, because he was perfect for Pittsburgh. But at that point, it was almost like uh, it wasn't as exciting as it should have been. And that was an example of as much as you can do to communicate and coach these guys up to not have the high expectations and, uh, you know, to prepare them for what's going to happen. Sometimes the emotions, these guys are so human and they're looking at their future. So it was just great when it comes to that. But these guys, all these agents were great. You know, Carter Chow talks about going through Julian Edelman and how everyone thought they were crazy for taking on this quarterback out of Kent State. They didn't understand the vision that him and Don Yee had to, no, this guy can play anywhere. He can do DB drills. He can do special teams. He's a, he can play receiver. He's a perfect kind of, you know, you know, Swiss Army knife for, for, for an organization. You know, in case Donahue, uh, he, they work a region. He's a smaller, younger uh, guy, but they really worked at, you know, that mid, northern Midwest of, you know, the Dakotas and Minnesota. And uh, then Vincent Taylor, who he just – Vincent Taylor, who just represented last year's number one pick to Ron Walker – he also represents Trent Williams, who's the, you know at at one point in his career was the highest paid lineman in football, and he really builds relationships and he likes doing, you know, investing with these guys outside of football and real estate and stuff like that. So it's really uh, cool to see how these guys. And I think the one thing that all of them I really really found great was they're all about relationships and wanting these guys to succeed off the field and after football as well, which is, which I thought agents got a bad rap in this world of being sharp and all about the dollar and not caring about the player. Like it is the complete opposite, which is, which is awesome. So, <laughs> it's a fun to hear about. so we're talking to Andy Phillips, author of round zero inside the NFL draft with the draft a few weeks away. It's a great guest to have on. Um, we saw the movie Draft Day with Kevin Costner. Um, everyone was, you know, the chaos, everything. And you interviewed Bill Polian and Ron Wolf, two of the greatest general managers of all time. And they said, we are the absolute opposite of what Kevin Costner is. We, I want total calmness. I want a library in the room. I don't want pounding on tables. Uh, talk about a little your interviews with Polian and Wolf in terms of how they go get ready for the draft. Oh, it, both were fantastic. Polian, hilarious. He dropped that line very early, saying the only thing that's true about the movie Draft Day is all the bad food you eat on draft weekend. And everything he goes is completely, you know, exaggerated slash fabricated. And the reason is, is exactly that. You know, the movie Draft Day makes it seem like this guy has no idea what he wants to do. Everything's last minute. He goes completely rogue or screaming, yelling. And it's, it's the fact that you're going to be scouting the top quarterback in the draft that day Listen, that, the fact that you didn't even go and do all your research within, you know, more than 12 hours outside of, you know, trading up to number one. I mean, it's, just, it's funny. And I love Kevin Costner. I think, it's, I think it's a great movie. This didn't ruin my experience of a movie. It just makes it feel more Hollywood than, you know, realistic. Bill Polian's awesome. And the reason I think Bill Polian's chapter for, like, the football nerds of the world like me, why that one's most impactful is because hard to get general managers to talk these days because nobody wants to give away their secrets. So getting a guy like Bill Polian, who's out of it to open up on running three different franchises that were all very, very different. You know, he was the, the 
head, the orchestrator of the great Buffalo Bills that made four Super Bowl runs. He was the head of three of them, but he's the one who put together the roster. And him talking about, I think the key in that one would be the, the Thurman Thomas draft when they wanted him in the first round, but due to a medical condition, they had to consult the doctors about where they could put him on the board. That's the thing that people don't realize. No one can go rogue. You can't go rogue, even if you're the decision maker. Everything. It's building the board. They had to convince the doctors to let them have Thurman Thomas on their board, and the doctors just said, you know, based on this knee condition uh, that they had, they said, we cannot advise you that to put him in a round one on your board. You can have him as a round two player. So that's how they had, were able to get Thurman Thomas was by having to convince their doctors that he was okay to take in round two. And then you go into, I think, and I think this is going to be the most read chapter. As soon as the NFL, which I think we all anticipate in the next 20 years, there's going to be probably a 33rd and 34th team added at some point with all the dollars that there are. He goes through taking over the Carolina Panthers when they were the expansion Panthers. And I was just so fascinated with how they did that first draft. They used the expansion draft and free agency to address their defense and pretty much solely their defense. And then they used their first draft to address the offense. So it was an influx of youth on the offensive side and a, just a completely stable veteran crew on defense with Capers. And he says everything was intact. That I mean, they went to the conference championship in year two. And he goes, that was when we had to readdress the defense that was now getting older. But ownership stepped in, made some decisions that, you know, essentially they meddled a little bit too far and kind of ruined the plan. And, you know, it never was completed. But to hear him to go through the expansion, that first draft was fascinating. Then he gets into talking about the Colts and the infamous Ryan Lee's Peyton Manning uh draft and their decision and, the, and what all went into them making it. I mean, it started as a true 50-50 split in the, in the room amongst the brass about who they wanted, and it ended with a very firm Paint Manning is our guy type of grade. So it was fascinating hearing him go through that. Ron Wolf, fantastic. Talked about when he was with the, as the assistant GM with the, with the Jets and how Brett Favre was actually their number one player on their board. And then they didn't have a first-round pick, though. So Brett ends up going the pick before there's in the second round because Brett had some injury uh, issues, you know, in the summer, you know, summer before his last year with the car accident that he was never fully himself. But they had seen enough film on his, you know, hey, what about the year before? And they, if you watch that film, you get to put it all together that, hey, this guy went fully healthy with Austin in the train is the best player in this draft. Well, they end up, he ends up not getting him there. But as soon as the following year when he takes over, um, the Packers and Brett's on the trade block. He knew exactly where he wanted pick number 19 to go. And this guy goes and takes over his first pick as a general manager, the coveted first round pick that all these general managers want. And he trades he, it. <laughs> he uses it on a guy who was drafted in the second round the year before in the doghouse, couldn't play in Atlanta, and had put on 25 pounds of bad weight. That's the guy that he had to convince Green Bay's brass that, hey, that's what this is the, to the board. I'm trading our first-round pick for this guy. And he goes, I would have loved to have seen their reaction when I left the room after convincing them of that. But we did it, and uh, there's just some fascinating stuff about that. But both of those guys, such unique things. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I only needed two general managers. I did. I mean, A, they were tough. I couldn't have got active ones. I had some, you know, I reached out to for some active ones. But most of these guys just don't want to do it from A. They don't want 
you know, I, I, I did think uh, there's a general manager. I'm not going to name his name out of, you know, confidentiality, but he, he, they told me him and his representatives with the organization said, you know, he was, he was honored. I thought of him. However, he wants to win a championship before he thinks he can, you know, tell people how it's done. And I, and I found that, you know, it was refreshing to hear, but I, I felt with these two guys, I mean, you get decades and decades and decades of draft stories and experiences here, whereas a player only goes through it the one time. So you, I needed more of those. Right. Well, and then you go in and talk about coaches and the players. And this is the one last question I wanted to ask you about the coaches. It was interesting. You interviewed Bill Cowher, Steve Mariucci, Mike Singletary. And you talked about how from their perspective, it's difficult. They're coaching their team the whole year. They're busy. And then the draft comes like right after the season ends. And they're doing stuff after the season, you know, especially if they go deep in the playoffs. And suddenly, you know, they have to be involved in this process, of course. But it's it's to catch up because you have scouts that are 365 days a year that are following these players. They're just getting involved, you know, right in the last couple of months of, this, of, the, of the process. Yeah, and that was, the, that was the one that I guess I had the most questions about because of my experience with Coach Magazoo and wanting to know exactly what, what happens with the coaches. And, you know, talking to Bill Cower, a guy who was with an unbelievable organization in Pittsburgh for all those years, they had a very, very, like, very clear process of how the end of the season works. You know, a lot of their seasons ended in January with Coach Cower. So the first thing you have to do is kind of do your self-scout, closing exit meetings with your players, with your coaches, and not exiting with the coaches, but kind of close down the season, right? And then, next thing you know, they're a couple weeks away from the combine. So his first thing that he would do was he wanted, you know, clips and, and you, know, you know, short, I don't want to say highlight films, but the good and the bad of basically anyone that they would talk to at the combine. So when he talked to them, he had information on them, right? He knew what to ask them. He knew what to talk to them about, had to, I, that he had seen them play, knew their strengths, knew some weaknesses. But then after that, he would then assign their position coaches all to kind of do a little bit of that, where you would say, hey, give me your, give me the, you know, the 10 best plays of the guys, 10 or 5 or 10 best plays of the guys, uh, you know, season, and give me the 5 or 10 worst ones where maybe it shows some of the concerns we would have. And he did joke that, you know, there'd be a guy that he knew that, you know, a coach might not like because next thing you know, it's all the bad highlights only. Uh, you know, they'd have their biases, but it was up to him to kind of figure it out a little bit. Um, but do you trust? How much do you have to trust your scout? Because, like you said, they're doing it 365 days of the year. You're hopping in a few months before the draft. So there has to be a level of trust right there for you to do it. And uh, I also found it interesting. I wanted to ask Coach Cowher, like, how much do you value what a college coach says about a prospect? I mean, that to me is, uh, you know, these coaches have to in college. You can't. You're a legit coach. You cannot say to these NFL teams that every single player that they ask about that comes through their doors is the best ever, and you know he's the you know first in, last out, greatest guy. Because at some point, it's not true, and then you're going to actually ruin the future of your players' experiences of going to the NFL because you burned the trust. End of the day, if there's going to be a problem, I mean, I'm just, you know, this isn't an example that was out there, but I, I, I have to believe, I have to, I have to believe that down at Texas A&M when they were asking about Johnny Manziel, that they couldn't have said the guys, you know, you know, he's not a partier, he's in the books all night. I'm sure they couldn't have said that because, a, as we now know, it wasn't true. But b, as soon as you lie about one prospect. Well, in 10 years, when you have a legit person that uh, you want to talk up to be drafted, you've already burned the trust with these GMs and coaches because of that one back then. So I asked him how much, how much weight did he carry on what the coaches were saying about prospects. And he said it just depended. You build the trust over time. But the ones that he seemed to trust the most were the guys that had NFL ties. 
So he trusts Nick Saban. Yeah, maybe he didn't have the success in the NFL that he had in college, but he had coached enough in the NFL that he knew what it took for a player to get to that level and how they had mature they had to be and what they had to be skilled at and all these kind of things. So he, he found he trusted the guys that had NFL ties a little bit more just because there was less of the what if with them. But I will say this, Mike Singletary, it was great talking to him about his, about his draft, but also his time as a head coach because he was humble. He, he knew that there were some things that didn't go well. And he said during this time specifically, if he could do it all over again, he would have less trust actually during this period with his, with his staff. And the reason he says that is because he kind of went through and just trusted them. But then as soon as he gets these guys in the camp, he, you know, some of them, he realized like, Oh my gosh, what, is, what did we do? Because end of the day, these guys aren't the ones coaching them. There is a difference in that. So he goes, listen, they're all great. And they all have their jobs to do. But for me personally, I'm going to be visiting with each and every, I'm going to go to each and every one of these guys' schools, each and every one of these guys' houses. I'm going to go to all these because at the end of the day, we're using our capital and my, my reputation and my career is on the line. He goes, I would do that completely different over again, especially with these top few round type of guys. Well, the book is Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. You're going to hear these stories, but a ton of more. You interview all the players. It's going to be great. So I really recommend this book. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But, Andy, thanks so much for coming on and talking about uh, the NFL Draft, which everyone is going to be talking about for the next uh, three weeks. And then when everybody makes the bad picks, they'll talk about them forever. <laughs> so. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, I, the questions were great. Like I said, I can tell you tell you really read this book, so I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Andy. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll maybe have you on later. Um, uh, if you have another, maybe you have another book coming out in the future. We will see. That's definitely, I would say another book's definitely on the board. All right. Thanks a lot, Andy. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care.